Well, I understand that this is the last of a series of seven, and uh, it's just wonderful here to be able to talk to you about the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea gets a really bad press, and it deserves it to some degree, but uh, we'll clarify that a little bit, go along. Just a little bit of self-promotion. Um, pa- uh, Pastor Layton mentioned commentaries, plural, I've actually only written one, but... Uh, but it came out a year ago, this Pentecostal commentary on Revelation. Now, I brought the la- some of the last few copies that I actually own at the moment. And I think we've still got a couple for sale. Is that right, Sarah? Two for sale at the bargain place and price of $40. And I did bring another book, my very first book called Revelation Reclaimed. And that's already sold. My gosh, you people are keen. So, uh, and this one, though, and my other book, The Revelation Worldview, can be got quite easily online. So Amazon have it, Kurong have it, um, so you, you, I won't have too much trouble with that. Unfortunately, the earlier book is a bit harder to get. I'm going to have to get more copies from the publisher uh, for people who want that. But it's all good. It's all good. I've been on a journey with God in the book of Revelation for many years, and these three books basically are the fruit um, of that. But let's get back to the church in Laodicea. And hopefully we're going to see a shot of the... of La- There it is. That's what Laodicea looks like. Well, what it looked like four years ago when I was there. So like all these churches, it doesn't exist any longer. But it was obviously a pretty prosperous place and it's one of the most significant archaeological sites right now. At least it was four years ago. I'm sure it hasn't changed much. My wife and I went on a little tour of these seven cities back in 2018 and uh, it was quite amazing really because we booked in this particular tour um, and when we arrived there we were the only ones. So we had the tour guide and the driver all to ourselves and the tour guide was a Muslim because this is Turkey which is where these places are and I'll come back to that point in a little, in a little while. But this is what Laodicea looks like, it was obviously a rather prosperous city All the evidence tells us that it was a very prosperous city, a self-sufficient city. So this area was, and I think still is, very subject to earthquakes. And Laodicea had two of them in the first century. So in 20 AD, they had a big earthquake. And then in 60 AD, which was probably around about the time the church started, they had a much more significant earthquake. The whole city was wrecked. And the government in Rome, this is all part of the Roman Empire in the first century, the government in Rome said, you need help, we'll give you some help to rebuild. They said, no, no, we don't need help. We're rich, we have needed nothing. You might find that a little bit reminiscent of something I'm going to read in just a minute. They did it all themselves. So you have to have a bit of admiration for a taste like that, don't you? You know, they get completely devastated completely wrecked, and they say, no, we are going to do this. We are going to build it up again. Now, before we go on, let's remind you of something I'm sure you've heard every week over the last few weeks. These are seven churches in the first century AD. So they're not seven eras of history or anything like that. They're real churches that really existed. They came out of a massive move of God You can read about that in Acts chapter 19, where the gospel went right through the province 
of Asia. When we say Asia, you, we don't think Asia as we think. It's just about half of Turkey, the southern half of Turkey today. Secondly, all these churches would be Pentecostal churches. No, they didn't belong to the ACC, sorry. They didn't have that revelation. But, you know, they were spirit-filled churches that flowed with the Holy Spirit. They were all powerful churches. If you walked in, into any one of those churches, you would sense the presence of God. But like every church today and all of our Pentecostal churches all over the world, they had both external pressures on them, like persecution and pressure to conform to society and society values, but they also had internal problems. They had false prophecy, they had false teachings and various other things. And at least one of them, it said, you're dead. That was a few weeks ago. I'm not sure who preached that one. But anyway, that's all good. So let's think a little bit about particularly the church in Laodicea. As I said, the Laodicean church has had a bad press. And a lot of people say, oh, well, these seven churches are seven stages in the history of the church, and it ends with Laodicea. It doesn't end very well. Now, as a Pentecostal, I go, I don't accept that. I don't accept that, that the church would not end well. I believe the Holy Spirit's power is big enough that the church can end well. Amen? Some of you can give me a... But and if we're going to do that, we have to be sure of what we're doing. And so the first thing we find today in this church and in every one of these churches is that Jesus comes and does an inspection and it's a reality check on that particular church. Every single one of the seven churches begins that way. He says something like, I know your works. I know about you guys. Now sometimes that's a good thing. So last week, Pastor Katrina talked to you about the church in Philadelphia. So he, he says, I know your works. You don't have a lot of power, but you have persevered. I'm very proud of you. A couple of the churches get that kind of message, but some of the churches get something not quite as good. Let's listen to what Jesus said through John to the church in Laodicea. So just the first bit of it. Revelation 3, 14 to 16. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's the NIV. Actually, it's a little bit toning it down. Really, it should be, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, okay? Jesus is heartily sick of what he sees in this church. Moving on, he says, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. So they're a bit like the city that wanted to rebuild without any help. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. As I said, Jesus comes to these churches and he does an inspection visit. He checks up on them. It's a bit like a school report. Do you remember school reports? Some of you are probably at school still. 
I can remember I, in high school, I was at a boarding school in Sydney, and my parents really didn't know what I was doing much until they got the report. Three times a year, there would be a report. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, I discovered that my mother still had these reports. And uh, she was downsizing and going into a nursing home, so I got a hold of them. I'm going, wow, is that what they said? <laughs> is that what they thought about me then? I, I was really quite shocked at a couple of things that I read. I don't know whether you remember getting school reports as a child. And you know, you're, you're hoping that the teacher doesn't mention that thing that you did, you know, three or four weeks before they wrote the report. You hope that they're, they're going to gild the lily a little bit, make things look a little bit nicer or whatever. You know, but what would Jesus say about you? What would Jesus, what would, be, what would be the report card if Jesus was writing a report card on you? So in this case, in this particular church, it was like, not bad. You know, there was no false prophecy in the church, as far as we can tell, unlike some of the other churches. They weren't dead like the church in Sardis was supposed to be. They hadn't fallen like the church in Ephesus had. They weren't bad, but they weren't good either. They were lukewarm. You know, a bit of this, a bit of that. You know, that's really not a good place to be, is it? And I just want to ask you this morning, just to, just to ask the Lord, where am I at? What is it? Do a reality check, or ask the Lord, rather, to do a reality check. Because, you know, we often kid ourselves, don't we? And look... It's not necessarily bad. Remember that the report cards of these churches weren't all bad. Okay, this particular one wasn't much good. If there's one church that we in the West are in danger of becoming, it's probably this one, isn't it? You know, this church had it all. It's not just that they were wealthy financially. They obviously had brilliant tithes and offerings. You know, I think if you know if you want tithes and offerings, what you want, that's the church for you, Pastor. You know, they they had it, but not only that. Some early commentators suggest they were also wealthy in a spiritual way, like they had really great teaching. They probably had an amazing Bible school. They probably had all sorts of other wonderful things, things flowing in that church. And so when they say, "I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing," they weren't kidding themselves they did have a lot going for them and that's how sometimes we particularly as Pentecostals we can deceive ourselves sometimes oh yeah but I prophesied a storm up last Sunday or I did this or I did that or I went to some and they're all good things and I'm not knocking that one little bit but sometimes we need to ask the Lord, Lord where am I really at with you because in a in a country like Australia you know Affluence is our big issue. You know, yes, I know we've all been through a pretty horrible time the last few years uh, with COVID. But compared to some other parts of the world, even with COVID, we've done quite well. You know, we had a government that literally threw money at us um, during that time. You see, so affluence can lead to comfort and comfort can lead to complacency. 
And that's what this church... You know, I reckon if they had pastors' meetings uh, in that area at that time, I'm sure the pastor in Laodicea, he was probably asked, do you need prayer? We'd, we'd like to pray for you. Oh, I don't need prayer. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got it all together. No problems in our church. Our tithes are through the roof. We, we're just kicking goals all over the place. Even the city council thinks we're pretty good. But you see, it was a bit fake, okay, because they really hadn't done that reality check. You know, Satan, I believe, from the book of Revelation, Satan has three major strategies to try and defeat the church because he's dead scared of us. And there's three different characters in the book of Revelation. There's the sea beast of Revelation 13. is persecution, pressure. Now, we don't know a lot about that. It's starting to ramp up a little bit, though, here in Victoria, isn't it? More pressure is coming on the church. More pressure is coming on us to conform to the standards of the world out there. More pressure is coming on us in a whole range of ways, which I don't want to go into today. But in some parts of the world, the pressure is huge, isn't it? The persecution is huge. But the second strategy that Satan has, and this is the other beast in Revelation 13, the land beast or the false prophet, is false teaching. Now, I don't think you get any of that in this church, but in some churches, you get a lot of false teaching. And in some countries, there's massive problems. I've been listening to some stuff about Africa. Africa is on fire in many ways for the Lord. But there's huge amounts of false teaching and false stuff going on as well, as Satan tries to deceive us. And then thirdly, and this is the one where I think we are most in danger, is the prostitute in Revelation 17, and that's seduction. Satan says, if I can't get them by persecution, if I can't get them by deception, I'm going to get them by seduction. I'm going to seduce them. And we get seduced into the ways of this world. We get seduced into the things, uh, into the priorities of this world. We get seduced. Instead of Jesus being number one, it's our football team. Now, I'm sure Jesus is not against football. In fact, I'm sure if Jesus were here today, he would barrack for the saints and oppose the demons. But if that becomes number one, or if our mortgage, or our, even our family becomes number one in our lives, then, then we're out of order, aren't we? We need to get our priorities right. So that's number one, reality check. Let me encourage you to ask Jesus to do a reality check on your life. How's it going? The second one, and this, is, this one will probably surprise you, is the word romance. By the way, you probably know, see, I'm a very traditional preacher. I have three points, and they all alliterate. So we, have, we had reality, we're up to romance. You can guess what the next one's going to be, maybe. You might go, romance? In the book of Revelation? You've got to be kidding. But notice what John says, or Jesus says through John, in the next two verses. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's probably the most well-known verse out of the whole book of Revelation. But one of the things that if you study Revelation, if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you really have to be very steeped in the Old Testament. Because in the book of Revelation, there are hundreds of, of references to the Old Testament, 
But John never tells you. He never says, as the prophet says. He never says, and this fulfills what Isaiah says or anything like that. He, he just expects you to know. So you really need to be strongly. So in this particular case, he's referring to a book that maybe some of you have never even read. I don't know. Song of Solomon. Who's read the Song of Solomon? Okay, those of you at home, you all read the Song of Solomon? You can't tell me anyway. So uh, it's right bang in the middle of your Bible. It's not a very long book. And it's, it's an unusual book. It's a bit raunchy. It's erotic. It really is. It's about a young guy and a young girl, and they're, they're, you know, really going for each other. And during this particular book, it's the stages of their relationship. So they get more and more close to each other, but more and more mature in their relationship. But in the middle, bang in the middle, in chapter 5, there is a particular issue, and we're going to read it now. This is the girl speaking. I slept but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved, the guy, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Wow. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Sounds like one of those really raunchy novels, doesn't it? <laughs> I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but didn't find him. I called but he did not answer it. It goes on to say that the watchman in the city actually gave her a beating when they found her out after dark like that. You see, this is the kind of thing that John or the Spirit expected the people to remember when Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, they are like the girl. She loves him. But she didn't want to get up. Okay? So it's like a, a challenge to us, doesn't it? How responsive are we going to be to Jesus? Let me ask you a question. What kind of story ends with a wedding? When I was doing my PhD, that's a long time ago now, but... I was in, in, uh, in a service one night and the pastor was preaching and he said something that just sort of started me off on a particular track. And I went to my PhD supervisor and I said, how far back does romance go in literature? And he said, oh, Middle Ages? I said, no, it's got to be further back than that. Because let's look at this, these parts to do with the end of the book of Revelation. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9. Or in the very second last chapter, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
So in other words, one of the themes in the book of Revelation that not many commentators talk about is that it's a love story. It's a love story between Jesus and the church. But we can also take it for ourselves. And that's what I believe that Jesus wants us to hear this morning from this story of Laodicea. And a few more verses before we go back to there. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is our lover. You have forsaken the love you had at first, he said to the Ephesus church. I will make them come down and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, he says to the church in Philadelphia. And to the church we're looking at, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So when Jesus was being very forthright and very strong in his language with the church in Laodicea, it wasn't because he didn't love them. It wasn't because he'd given up on them. It was because he loved them so much he wanted to set them right. Amen? Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. I will come, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and that person with me. The first thing I get from this story and from many of the others is the shock. The shock that a church could be like this. The shock that Jesus was actually locked out of his church. Because they didn't have buildings in those days. But he was locked out of the congregation. They shut him out. He had to knock to get back in again. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? Is Jesus locked out of your life? You know, when Jesus comes knocking, when he says, I want to spend time with you. I want to talk to you. You know, sometimes he comes at the most inconvenient times when you're watching that brilliant TV show and it's just before the climax and suddenly the Holy Spirit is there going, I want to talk to you. I don't just wait a few minutes. Well, of course, it was like that lady. She waited a few minutes and he'd gone. You know, it's a bit, it's a a challenging thought, isn't it? But the good thing about this though, you see, because he's talking to the whole church, is that it doesn't, depend on the whole church responding. It's an individual response that Jesus is looking at. When I was, when I was doing that, that tour back in 2018 with my wife and this Muslim bloke, it was, it was quite funny being taken around the seven churches by a Muslim and everywhere he went he would stand up and read the passage out of Revelation. He'd read it to us and he'd actually preach from it a little bit. Now, of course, you know, I'm a Christian preacher and I'm a bit of an expert on Revelation. It was a bit, a bit funny being preached to by a Muslim out of the book of Revelation. But I kept my cool and I didn't say anything until the last one. And he was going on about the church being bad and the church doing this and the church doing that and the church, you know, yeah, 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 I get all that. I finally couldn't hold myself any longer. I said, mate, it's not just the church. It's about the individual person. It's about you and me. Jesus is knocking on our door. Now, I don't know about you. That was a big part of my conversion. That was a big part of me coming to Christ, is that I responded to that knock, and Jesus came into my life. Now, I know that's not brilliant hermeneutics. He's not talking to non-Christians, really, but who cares? And uh, But the, the point, though, is... The point, though, is that it applies to all of us. 
even if you've been a Christian for hundreds of years, well, perhaps not hundreds of years, but, you know, even if you've been a Christian for yonks, Jesus is still knocking. Jesus still wants time with you. Jesus still wants to have a meal with you. Jesus still wants you to, to come into your life. It's not a one-off thing. It's not, oh, I did that 30 years ago. I don't have to worry about it. No, it's an ongoing response that he's looking at because he loves you, because he wants time with you. You know, if, if, if the queen of our queen, if she came and knocked on your door and said, can I have afternoon tea, I don't think many of us would um, go, oh, sorry, I haven't got time for you. You know, but Jesus is the king of kings. Amen. So we need to respond to him. Amen. Okay, let's come to the third one now. And this is a bit shocking in a different way. And I've called this rule. The last two verses. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me stop there just for one minute. Because... Yes, I'm saying this with seven first century churches, but they speak to us. They're in the Bible for a reason. Because God doesn't just want to study them as some kind of archaeological, historical study like you do get in some commentaries. You know, the church was like this and the city was like this and blah, 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 blah. And it's all true, but then they stop. Hey, it's the Bible. It's meant to speak to you and to me as well. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us hear, Dandenong, let us hear, online people, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through that first century document to us in the 21st century. Amen? And in every one of these letters, it finishes with something like, to the one who is victorious and then it gives you a promise so two things from that first of all not necessarily all the people in that church will be victorious see some of them will be seduced by the society around them and they while they might still have the name christian you wouldn't be able to tell that they're indifferent to anybody else some will give in because the pressure gets too much some will go off with some false teacher somewhere and go into some kind of cult or something. So not everybody will be victorious. And I'm going to talk to you about what that means in just a minute. But notice, first of all, the outrageous promise that Jesus gives them in this passage. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. That is outrageous. Do you mean that, Jesus? That I could actually sit on your throne? Whew. Every time I read that, I go, you can't be serious. You, I mean, I'll be happy just to be in heaven. You know what I mean? It's an outrageous promise, but he means it. You see, the more the problem... The bigger the problem, the bigger the reward. Amen? So how do we get to be victorious? How do we get to join that group? And I want to 
move out of Revelation 3 for a minute into Revelation 12, 11, my favourite verse in the whole book of Revelation. And that is we need to embrace Jesus as our lover. We need to have that reality check and we need to become radical in our discipleship. Listen to this verse. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now that's in another part of the book of Revelation where there's a war going on in heaven between Satan and his angels and Michael, the chief God angel, and his angels and, and the, the devil gets thrown out of heaven and so on. It just sounds, wow, that's amazing stuff that goes on in heaven. has an effect here on earth. Well, that's really nice. But when they interpret it, when the Spirit interprets this, he doesn't say, oh, Michael was brilliant. Oh, the angels were great. Oh, God's power was so much greater than the power of the devil. No, he says, they. Who's they? Well, if you go back to the previous verse, it's the, it's the Christians, the people who Jesus, oh, the Satan had been accusing day and night before the throne of God. They, the Christians, triumphed over him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. You see, the blood of the Lamb is the key to everything in the book of Revelation. Jesus purchased people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation by his precious blood. The blood of the Lamb brings the victory, but it doesn't do it automatically. It says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, these people were so radical that nothing would shut them up. They were so radical that when the, the Roman Empire tried to say to them, listen guys, you have got to worship the gods of the Greeks and Romans, and by the way, you also have to give some uh, special worship kind of allegiance to the devil, to, not to the devil, to Caesar. Well, it was the devil, but it was <laughs> Caesar uh, was the face of the devil. And they said, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. But we're going to kill you. Go ahead. You see, these people were so full on for Jesus, they did not love their lives so much as to stream to death. And I could tell you story after story after story, but we haven't got time. But just remember, when you're praying, you might say, well, so-and-so is giving me a hard time for being a Christian. But of course, if you were in somewhere like, say, North Korea, it would be quite a lot worse, wouldn't it? You know, if you're in China, the pressure on you would be much harder. But you see, the people who don't mind even getting killed, they are the heroes of the book of Revelation. They are the heroes. Okay, that's why I get a bit peeved where people go on about, oh, if you're really good, you'll get taken up in the rapture and you won't have to go through any tribulation and blah, 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 blah. Going, you haven't read the book of Revelation very well. Because the heroes of the book of Revelation are not comfortable middle-class Americans or Australians who get raptured out of here. They are the people who go through it all and who, if necessary, get killed for their faith. They are the ones who specifically get to rule and reign with Christ in the thousand years. I'm not saying no one else. So the point that the text is trying to make to us here is it's this kind of radical discipleship that causes Jesus to say, I want you on my throne. I want to brag about you. I am so proud of you. Now, 
The church in Laodicea, of course, was a long way from there. They had to have that reality check to find out where they really were. They had to be called again back to their love relationship with Jesus. They had to be challenged again to be that kind of radical disciple. But if they did, if they responded, wow, look at the reward. So if I had to sum this, if, if your uh, musicians want to come back up right now, that would be great. If I had to sum up this whole message in one word, in fact, if I had to sum up the whole book of Revelation in one word that says what Jesus wants from us in response to this book, it's the word passion. Passion. The Lord is looking for passionate disciples. Passionate people who've done a reality check, who've, who've responded to the Lord, who have rekindled their love for Jesus and who are willing to serve him in that radical way no matter what the cost might be. That's what he's looking for today. Amen.